0: It hit me that you don't have to go ask a teacher, an actual professor or teacher, how to do something. You live in a country that is reasonably free and you can try whatever you want. And that was very freeing.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 117th episode, Judy Tavel joins me from New Jersey, where we discuss her evolution as a fashion designer working for Zales, developing her own line, and ultimately becoming a ceramic artist for over a decade. So again, it's a very interesting story, and it's all coming up on Studio Break. In case you're a new listener, Studio Break is a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists from around the country and sometimes from around the globe. And they come on and discuss with me their innermost secrets about their studio practice, how they developed as an artist, some of the research, the techniques that are involved. And we share these interviews on StudioBreak.com. Once again, each of the blog posts feature images of the artist's work, links to their website so you can find out more And these handy interviews where you can just play it right there on the website. Or if you want, you can follow that hyperlink, go to the iTunes store, subscribe to the podcast, and you can get updates each and every time we have a new episode. Once again, it's an easy way to listen, so please check that out. If you're interested, any of the archives can be found simply by looking over in the left sidebar, going to Archive, and then scrolling month by month. You'll also notice if you want to find out more information about me, you can find it right there on the left sidebar, so please check all that stuff out. All right, here is our great interview with Judy. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm excited to be joined by Judy Table this morning. How are you doing?
0: I'm great, David. How are you?
1: I'm excellent, you know. And and we've been chatting for a bit here and having all sorts of interesting conversations thus far so i think it's going to be a, a great interview so thanks again for taking the time to do this
0: thank you looking forward to it
1: and and so you know i i, I know that you've listened to some of these podcasts and that so you kind of maybe have an idea of how they go uh, why don't we start by just uh letting us know uh, where you're from and, and where you grew up and we can kind of wind our way th- from there
0: i grew up in baltimore maryland in the suburbs and um, although I spent a lot of time going into the city, my dad uh, was worked in the city, and it wasn't that far when you live in the suburbs of Baltimore. So did
1: you t- did you take a lot of classes then when you were when you were younger, or, yeah. or was it all just kind of like you were saying, just kind of like drawing the the same kind of thing that we. We probably all start out doing, right? As-
0: I mean, nothing really outlandish, to be honest with you. We did live in a fairly woodsy sort of rural area, whereas like a lot of my friends grew up in more planned communities. We were sort of farther out, so it wasn't like I could run out into the street and see tons of kids right away. So I think I had to occupy my time. And, you know, I I played with the Barbie dolls, but right away I'd be making clothes for the Barbie dolls, you know, stuff like that. And, um, and I just really did a lot with just spending time drawing and, and coloring. I really didn't touch clay till much later. The fashion thing was really my focus. Um, I was really focused on it all through growing up. I think when I was younger, I had some friends that made drawings of uh, floor plans of houses, like thinking about being interior designers and stuff. And I love that. And we would keep them in um, like photo albums with the clear plastic on top. And this was the... 70s, I want to say. It was sort of the mid to late 70s. So you had shag rugs and a lot of texturing with the pens. And I just really had this duality growing up um, where on the one hand, I could be sort of introverted and doing my drawing and, you know, keeping to myself and keeping myself occupied. And then I had this other side that was much more like social and so forth. I mean. as I got into high school, it was more about I was the cheerleader captain and did all the social things. And then on the other side of things, I was on the side of the road painting an oil painting for my portfolio in ripped-up jeans and freezing cold. Right. You know? <laughs> so I had, and, and honestly, I have to say, to this day, for a long time, I was like, "Well, I just want to be this, or I just want to be that." And now I sort of have embraced the fact that this is just who I am. I have these two sides. I'm not Sybil, but mm-hmm. I have <laughs> these two sides. I basically took the usual art classes. I think I was gifted in talented art, which showed that I had some talent there. Um, and then I think I started to develop being sort of known as like, if you needed something done art wise, come to Judy kind of thing. And, um, I don't think it felt like it came that easy to me. I think I had ideas of what things should look like in my head. I wasn't as free with my art then. I sort of wanted it, if it was an apple, I wanted it to look like an apple. And I really worked hard. I mean, I would say my work ethic was probably even stronger than my actual ability at the time. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's a lot of how that started off.
1: So then how did you become, you know, interested in studying formally? I mean, did you decide that like, you're going to go to a, a fashion institute? I mean, did you kind of pursue it as a undergraduate?
0: I went two different routes. I knew I wanted to be a fashion designer. And I can tell you, I was so focused to the point where I started looking into colleges in like ninth grade on those green printouts the guidance office had with all the little holes on the edge. I mean, this is what, when like the first computers would print like nothing, you know, (laughs) and I would grab this thing that said where you could major in fashion design and I'd outline it and draw it. Like I wanted to have a plan. What happened was I picked schools to apply to Parsons, RISD, Pratt and Washington University in St. Louis, which was a little odd because it was this truly academic school, but they had this fashion design uh, major in their art school. And, and, and But I always thought, well, RISD was probably best because then I could maybe take classes at Brown, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, I go to Portfolio Day and I took what I had in my portfolio thinking, you know, it was going to be a good experience to the Maryland Institute of Art because this was in Baltimore. And the gentleman from uh, Chicago Art Institute was an older man. At least he seemed older to me now. Who knows? He could be my age now. But he <laughs> he uh, looks at my portfolio and looks up at me and says, you know, and he's the first person I talked to. And he says, you know, you're not going to get into any of the schools here with this portfolio. And I was dumbstruck. I just right. here. I thought I'm good to go. Da, da, da. And I said, well, well. And I thought in my head, you better ask him why.
1: Right, right. (laughs)
0: And And he said, well, because you have none of the core components that we look at when you look at a portfolio, even though my art teachers were very... Supportive, I don't think they truly got the program in terms of what the schools were looking for. They wanted the crushed paper bag drawn, the three balls in charcoal. You know, they had very specific things so they could see if your core talent was there. And so basically, After that, I was pretty devastated. I went home. I'm like, well, maybe I'm not going to, you know, go to art school. Maybe I should just become a fashion merchandiser. Maybe I have no talent, yada, yada, yada. And I started sort of taking some time and not doing any art and feeling bad and so forth. And my art teacher at school sees me dressed in like ripped jeans and, you know, kind of whatever. He's like, what's going on? Cause you were always, you know, kind of fashion focused. It wasn't like, I wasn't really of the day fashion focused. I just wore whatever I thought would look really cool.
1: Right. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I had this experience and I'm, I really don't think I can get it. And he's like, well, here's the thing. You can decide now not to even bother with it, or you can go for it and spend the time you have between now and applying to change things and give it a chance. And so I went back with that and it clicked to me that this was my chance. Why should I blow it? Why not at least try? I could still apply to merchandising programs if I wanted to, from an academic standpoint. And so, I basically pummeled through everything you need to do in a portfolio and then some. And I spent a lot of time, like I said, I was cheerleading during, you know, that time of the day. And then the rest of the time I was like trying to get this portfolio together. And I applied and all the schools, I applied to 12 schools and I got into every single school and, and that was with the portfolio requirement. And it ended up being like this amazing thing for me to learn, which was that if you put your mind to it, you can make a difference with it. You know, I knew that it was important to me to be resourceful. If I wanted something, I had to just do it. And if you didn't know how to do it, you figured out how to do it. Right. You know, and that's yeah, I feel very strongly about that in general today.
1: It's such an interesting idea just because it's yeah, I mean something that completely remains relevant all the time.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because we're always,
1: you know, as artists, we're always kind of in this environment where we don't know how to do something. Yeah. And we kind of have to figure our way through it.
0: Well, that yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: Well, and so and so you started where then? Where did you wind up choosing to go?
0: So that was what was weird. I always wanted to go to Rhode Island School of Design, and I was so excited about it. And then we go out. I couldn't believe I got into Washington University. We went out there to visit, and I had this amazing time. And this school really appealed to that duality I had. It was this... Art school, you know, with cool artsy people, and they were all pretty smart. You know, I really liked the idea of having the intellectual aspect, although you wouldn't maybe know it about me in college, but that was important to me. I loved, I I was really pleased going to Washington University because um, I had a great experience, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have ceramics there. So that still didn't cross my path. It was a great core fine arts program, um, which at the time, I think I was sort of thinking, well, I just want to get right to the fashion. And I did certain like independent studies and electives so I could get to the fashion. But really, I had to take drawing, 2D design, 3D design, painting, both my freshman, and sophomore years. And these were three hour, twice a week studio classes with a lot of time in between working on sure. projects like any art school, I think. And, and it was for BFA. And I did decide to minor in business, um, which really made my dad happy. I think the whole idea that I was going to become even a fashion designer seemed so outrageous to him being an attorney that um, I think he thought I was going for my MRS degree, which I was not. And so the only time I sort of had a step back from like, should I not keep going forward with this fashion thing was that I had a very good experience. That same sort of, this is really hard, but I'm going to conquer it kind of thing with my um, figure structure class, which was a drawing class. This teacher was excellent. She had you work from the structure of the figure, meaning the bones and the muscles and the skin, and really learn things all the way from the inside out. So we had to do a full size charcoal drawing of the skeleton and it was an amazing experience and I did really well and I think at that point I was like wow I really could be like a real artist where I didn't think of fashion as a real artist I think and I had like a moment or a few months of pause but I basically was like okay that was cool but I can't do that like so I backed right back into what I had focused on and that's what I graduated with a major in fashion design, minor in business.
1: I think one of the things that I would just throw out there that's so interesting, and I'm sure you're going to get to the um, whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever big thing happened that you became a a ceramicist, but, you know, just that idea of material too, you know, like, I mean, just taking something that, you know, you think of that you you still construct, I guess, in the same way I would imagine, but, you know, something that's very flowing, that's fabric versus something that you're, you know, kind of carving into or, or shaping with your hands, but yeah,
0: there is a connection there, and it's funny because looking back at college is when I truly understand sort of how I deal with clay. When I was learning fashion, we, we learned a lot of pattern making and things like that, which honestly didn't p- appeal to me as much as draping the fabric on a figure form or a person and pinning it into place, basically, and then working backwards from there, making patterns from how you've pinned it and, you know, creating the garment that way. And interesting. So I come out of there. I end up, I was going to go work for someone in Chicago. I had a boyfriend at the time. And I really liked the city of Chicago. I mean, I had a I had a Lincoln Park apartment all lined up. I think I had signed a lease on that that I had to get out of because um, in the eleventh hour, my car was all packed, and the head of uh, the fashion department said, "Venture stores." I don't know. You've, you're probably too young to remember. No, venture I, stores. I
1: remember them. Just it seems like seems like a different time, you know. Like yeah, walking no, around a, as a kid. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, so this was 1990 to give you an idea. So, yeah. um, But it was towards the I'd say it was towards the end of venture the last few years. But basically venture stores was a Midwest retailer. It was sort of the target of the 90s store area it was in. Not even quite like. Target took on such a life of its own, but it was sort of what the early Targets were like. And Target was our major competitor, at least from a fashion standpoint. I know you're thinking fashion. How is that possible? (laughs) Um, And that is what I was thinking. And the head of... The soft lines, her name was Maxine Clark, and she said to me, point blank, okay, well, you can go design clothes that are going to be sold at Neiman Marcus and have to buy your clothes at Venture stores, or you can come work at Venture, and I bet you'll be able to buy some clothes at Neiman Marcus.
1: (laughs) Right, right.
0: (laughs) I was like, whoa. I mean, that was one comment, but there was also a lot of opportunity there. They were bringing me in as an assistant fashion director, and this this was a new position. And it was also developing private label for them. So they were making things where they created labels with things under it. This doesn't relate as much to the art, Mm -hmm. but it's just sort of my journey is that it exposed me to traveling overseas right away. They sent me overseas a couple months into my position there, and I really saw a lot of things in the world that I wouldn't have seen had I gone a different route. I was in Hong Kong and Taipei and Singapore, and it was it was an amazing experience. And with that, I then later went to... New York and moved into um, different jobs there and worked there. And eventually I ended up in a job in Philadelphia, having met my husband who was uh, doing his residency in Philadelphia and I was living in New York city. And basically it brought me to Philly and as the head designer for a line that was being brought back into Vogue called uh, Lily Pulitzer, mm-hmm. which was a print design uh, focused, Line That was big when like Jackie Kennedy wore all the little shift dresses. It was like Palm Beachy. But so I worked at Lilly. I was I had a great experience there. Um, I can only say good things about the people that I worked with there. But then I wanted to start my own line and I got pregnant. So it was terrible timing, but, um, and my husband's like residency and fellowship was over and we were going to be moving out of the area somewhere, we figured. And so I started my own line, which was an amazing experience as a, a business owner, but it also taught me some things that I didn't want to keep doing. And, um, and I closed the line and my son, Jake was born, uh, about four weeks early and, that became my focus for a while. I continued to freelance. Maxine Clark, who had been the head of Softlines at Venture, had now become president of Payless Shoes and then had gone off to start her own business called Build-A-Bear Workshop. Mm -hmm. And she asked me to design the first clothes for the bears. So I actually made the first clothes for these bears at this Build-A-Bear Workshop. And that was taking me back to more of a hands-on thing. And that was interesting. But I really didn't see that sort of as my future. Mm-hmm. 9-11 had hit. I was painting. I really didn't want to get back into fashion and traveling overseas. Our area was struck pretty deeply um, from 9 11 because it's a Wall Street bedroom community mm-hmm. and a lot of people were lost. So, and there was a whole emotional side that became very strong. And I had had my second child, Sam. I was painting and I was putting my hands in the paint a lot. I was using a lot of oil paint sticks and blending it with my fingers. And my friend who is a painter, John Peters said to me, you know, that's probably toxic. What right. you're doing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing, you know, any, any painters listening, you know, wear gloves.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So, so he, I said, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, you're you're rubbing your hands into the oil paint and those are, you know, toxic things that he's like, you know, you might want to wear gloves, and so I started doing that, but I really liked manipulating the image with my hands. And finally he said to me, Why don't why don't you try like picking up pottery or clay or something. And I'm thinking, well, that's weird. So the first thing I did was I took a a sculpture 101 class at Brookdale Community College. It was more of a combination of doing and reviewing. It wasn't like a heavy-duty studio uh, Mm -hmm. course. But it really got my head back to thinking conceptually, and it was a great opportunity for me. And one of the projects was a relief, and I sort of built up this... Image of um, cactus leaves on the edge of a, you know, in a photograph, and you were supposed to duplicate it basically. And I really enjoyed that. So that sort of stayed in my head. So I decided to take up a pottery class at the uh, Monmouth County Park System, um, which has an amazing studio there that's very reasonable in their creative arts center. And I started, uh, I took one class. And I was doing the hand building thing and I liked it, but I kept seeing these people on the wheel and I was like, I I just have to try that. I have to learn to use the wheel. It's very sexy, you know, like you really not from the ghost thing, but you you really, and that's like the recurring joke. Um, but, but, you know, you see this thing pop up and your are coil building and it's a much longer time that's involved. And I think that, um, Initially, that's how you feel when you see it. It's like, oh, I want my stuff to just pop up and then I can work with it. And it really doesn't work that way. It takes a ton of learning and cultivating that skill to get there. But um, But I did start taking more and more classes. I was up to taking three three-hour classes a week, you know, taking care of my little kids. And basically... You know and, and it was adding up and fine and, and frankly I don't think they wanted me firing all my stuff in their kilns there mm-hmm. all day long <laughs> and uh, and then when we moved back into our house we were able to design it so that I had a studio space the initial plan was that would be my painting studio but it turned into a, a ceramic studio
1: interesting and,
0: and I got a kiln and that really allowed me to just go forward really strongly
1: and I guess especially since you know we we've, we've spoken a bit about you know especially Especially that that history of, of being a, a fashion designer and all your experiences and that I mean, you know, yeah. just coming to it raw, then I mean, what was it like to kind of be? I mean, obviously, you're, you're taking yeah. these other classes to kind of, yeah. you know, so you've been doing this for a little while. But I mean, what was so gratifying about being able to, to manipulate like that? I mean, what did it unlock for you?
0: Well, it was a combination. On the one hand, I never thought I would like this messy sort of studio practice. Mm -hmm. It was, like, really hard for me to, like, get my head around that. And then on the other hand, I was sort of, like, loving the fact that I'm an artist, I'm covered with clay, I'm just living the life, you know? (laughs) I kind of embraced it. And then I I had a lot to learn, and I wasn't going back to school having already had a BFA and having two small kids. I really didn't see it as an option. Mm-hmm. Um, I had other responsibilities. So what I did was I really learned as much as I could through every book I could buy. YouTube still wasn't as strong as it is now, but occasionally you could find videos of somebody working or you could buy videos or you could go, um, and take workshops. And the initial workshops I took were strictly demonstrations, but that was very helpful to me. My first teacher who really inspired me was a young guy. His name was Brian Quinn Cannon. He, he was, He really showed me how you could make more artistic pieces on the wheel and manipulate the clay on the wheel. I really appreciated his aesthetic. It had sort of a George Orr feeling to it, but on a kind of whole large form aspect. You know, I saw what could happen to the clay. And nobody told me, like, you can't do this and you can't do that because I was alone a lot of the time working on things. So I could cut into the clay shift it and change it. And it wasn't until it came out of the kiln that I realized, oh, this is going to cause a giant crack, you know? (laughs) So I had to like backtrack and figure out like, oh, okay. So clay has memory. And if you pull it and turn it this way, you're going against the memory and therefore the clay might, you know, crack. And how am I going to deal with that? And I sort of had to learn by doing. And, um, I think that's how I best learn. It's been a journey. I mean, that's a thing. Like, I can't believe I've been at it, you know, for about 12 years now. But then again, I thought I thought I was ready to, like, put it out into the world pretty early. Mm-hmm. And looking at what's in the world, I don't feel bad that I did that from that perspective. But looking at how I view my work now versus what I did Previously, and was putting it out there. I'm sort of disgusted with myself <laughs> because <laughs> the immediacy of it wasn't necessary. And fashion really teaches you to, you know, move on after each season—at least three seasons a year, maybe two. But right, right. And so, That's interesting. I, yeah, and I, but I understood the concept of staying true to a voice. I knew about building a brand from fashion and that was sort of restraining as well as a framework i sort of created my own frameworks like you can't do that because you do this like you're no you're going to be known for this so you can't do that and in some ways it created a cohesive body of work but in other ways i wasn't i wasn't allowing myself to do anything different which would possibly enter me into a whole new world
1: so where we just last left off you know we were talking about the the beginnings of your ceramic work and I just want to kind of clarify too so if you could give us an idea of you know roughly where we're at you know you were talking about outfitting your new your new place um complete with ceramic studio
0: I think I was talking about how how I was learning and who I was learning from and and how I was doing a lot of it sort of DIY. Right. Yeah. And you know, that brings in what we were talking about before the interview, which was the whole idea of resourcefulness. It hit me that you don't have to go ask a teacher, an actual professor or teacher, how to do something. You live in a country that is reasonably free and you can try whatever you want. <laughs> right, And that was very freeing. And so I did that, and I let myself sort of explore, and I don't know if that came from one of the first workshops I took, which was just a demonstration workshop. that Peter Callis, who uh, is a character who is is very well known for his work, uh, wood fired work. He's actually um, from New Jersey originally, not right here, but um, he was teaching a one day like workshop. And he did something and I remember saying to him, You can do that, like that's okay. And he's like, Honey. <laughs> yeah, I think he said honey. <laughs> Goodness. Um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a character. Um, he's like, It's a free country. You're not living in like some, you know, uh, police state. You can do whatever you want. So if you want to do this to the clay or that to the clay, you can do whatever you want. And you know, for what it's worth, like I needed to hear that. I needed somebody to say that to me and give me permission. I Mm -hmm. think, you know, you could psychologically break that down, but, (laughs) but I think that was very freeing. And also it showed me, okay, well, if you want to do these things, you're going to have to figure out how to do them, whether you ask people and that might have made me more interested in finding people online via I think I was on Etsy at the time and there was a mud group there that I had joined and we were able to share information with each other there as well as eventually years later probably it was when Facebook became very helpful with reaching out to ceramic artists because when you're you know alone doing your thing you may have some local people you can reach out to but You know, when you're right in the middle of something, it's really nice to be able to go online and say, hey, you know, artists or ceramic artists or potters, I really need help with X, Y and Z. Do you know if this works? You know, before Mm -hmm. you completely blow up a kiln. So that, (laughs) that was definitely sort of how the exploring happened and how my education kind of continued. I mean, I still took classes for a while here and there at the craft center. I took amazing workshops from different people, um, and learned a lot of tricks sort of, of the trade, but I was always very focused on not making somebody else's work. And I Mm -hmm. see that happening a lot, um, in the ceramic world because, um,
1: It's got to be one of the oldest forms of art making, you know, that there is, though, too, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, it is encouraged to have people try um, techniques so that they can learn the technique. So they want you to copy their work in a workshop, for instance. They might suggest that. But what is disconcerting to me is that when somebody literally learns something in a workshop, that looks and they, I mean, maybe it's not to the quality of that person, but to the naked eye of, you know, somebody at a little craft fair somewhere, it's amazing. Right. And basically, which is, you know, one, whatever, like it's all, but what's disconcerting to me is why doesn't that person, why do they want to make somebody else's work? You know, like I never really, I mean, to me, that's where you start to divide artist Potter from craft, like, I don't even know what to call it. Cause I, I still think that there are unique, you know, all sorts of unique craft people, unique potters, production potters. They still make their own design, but there are people that literally can master a skill, but really don't bring their own voice to it. You kind of have to find your own voice. And if you start to step on people's toes getting there you know you need to pull back from that and and say to yourself, "Oh, I really am like how did that i don't know how that happened, and then there are people that do things very similarly and they may have been developing all at the same time so i 'm not saying everything is this perfect unique thing. um There are people that will say, "Oh, your work reminds me of so and so," which of course breaks my heart well but
1: that desire to kind of really make it your own was was something that was really apparent when you were when you were starting
0: absolutely. I mean, it's always been my thing. Like, and, and it it's especially my thing because having worked in fashion and having had to design a line that was somebody else's thing and I was really good at it. You know, I was, you could tell me this is what we're making and I could create that brand item, you know, like I could make it all work and, and take it to the next level, what have you. But Here I was, like, free to be an artist out in the world and do my own thing. I needed to find my own voice. And in doing so, it's not always making the art that you would then seek out to purchase. Mm -hmm. It's what's coming out of you at the time. And you can't drive yourself too crazy on that. Like, you kind of have to say what you're saying, whether it's something that you would like to own or not. Mm -hmm. You know, anyone that has sort of the monkey mind, analyzing brain, it's a hard place to be, you know, it's, but it, but it's important. I I really, I feel that.
1: So when you were starting out, obviously you're learning a lot of techniques, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea of kind of creating things that are functional. Right. And and there's certainly like a shift between your your most recent work and then some of the work that came before it. Um, But was that kind of like a a big drive and, and something that kind of allowed you to kind of figure out the techniques?
0: Yeah, I think I think for me, coming from fashion, which was I, I viewed as a functional art, at least apparel design is right, and I really like the idea of making functional work. And um, I still I, I love having handmade, handcrafted, beautiful, unique work that that we use in our home. Mm-hmm. I think everybody should have that, but the, I, you know, but they have to grow an appreciation for that if they don't have it. I, I can't make someone feel that way. But I I really do feel strongly about that. But it also created a framework for me. Like, if you have to make a cup, there are certain things that cup has to do. So you have to be able to drink from it. You have to be able to hold it. You want some sort of handle that you can function comfortably with. And, I mean, people will talk about cups in the ceramic world. Uh, I mean, there are huge conferences about cups. So (laughs) this can go on forever. But the bottom line is it creates a framework and you have to work within that framework if you want that piece to function. And that was, that was a creative exercise to me that was very important. Like I had to learn how to do that, what works, what doesn't work, why this works, why it doesn't. And, and then in the end, ultimately, is it important that, that that is a functional cup or does it become a work of art? that just sits there. And, you know, that's with anything, teapots, platters, bowls. I was really working off the vessel form. There's a whole other thing of the aspect of a vessel feels like it has has a human figure feeling to it. You feel a sense of space within a vessel. And when you start making flatter pieces, you want to put them on the wall, you know, and that's a different thing. So, so there's a lot of things going on. And I remember looking at my kiln after having it for like three months thinking, you know, what's great about this kiln is that no matter what I do with clay, I could just do something totally different. You know, like you could turn on a dime tomorrow and make a totally different body of work, but all of your knowledge and your equipment you can pretty much keep using and that was like great to me like I was really excited and you could make functional stuff till the cows come home or you could make art or you could make you know pieces of something else. It could just be a tool to, you know, and part of your work. And, and I remember that's what I was just really drawn to the aspect of clay and this firing and all the things you could do. Yeah. So anyway, so the work started out very functional and then I was creating sort of function with a twist and, and developing my own voice with that and thinking three-dimensionally. And making sure that the work as you turned it was still as exciting to you as the one side. And that was always really important to me. And actually, as time has gone on, I haven't I've moved away from a lot of the constraints that I've had before. I probably put more constraints on now, but they're different.
1: Well, it's it's interesting because then it, it makes you immediately think of, especially if you're thinking about looking at it from different sides, you know, the way that this is really like a kind of almost like sculpture. You know what I mean? Yeah. One of the other things that I'm so drawn to just in comparison to the, I mean, essentially those two breaks in, in work is that, sorry, I'm I'm describing this as a painter, but I mean, it's very smooth. Oh, yeah. Like all the like lines kind of slowly kind of like unfold. And I, I still think that idea of like, I don't know, visually anyways, like layering is something that's in there is something like kind of like coming out of like a, a seed pod or, you know what I mean? That, yeah. that aspect of it, it just seems like kind of then gets blown out in your most recent work then.
0: I, I developed the work as it changed for a lot of different reasons. I found that I was making work and, um, I, I was getting bored. I mean, maybe that's the fashion thing. Like I, You know, I'm used to like, boom, boom, boom. And I try to be all Zen about it and, um, and stay, you know, in the moment. And, and I do that, but, but if you have this material that you can do so much with open to you, why wouldn't you try some things here and there? And I mean, there are people that have lines of, functional work in particular, even, even. I mean, if it's a vase, it's still a functional work, even some sculpture, but where galleries or customers are looking for the same thing over and over from them. Mm-hmm. And so they they sort of have to continue to produce that way. I just didn't feel like it was that important that I had this huge customer base that was, and and before I jumped into that, which would have meant doing more retail shows and starting a wholesale line, I wanted to continue to explore. And along the way, it feels very different, but it, it was sort of gradual. Like I had a lot of steps forward and steps back as I developed the work. And you see a lot of pieces on my website you were saying you see like over 200 pieces. Close, close. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not quite. But I mean, but the thing is, like people would say, oh, wow, you're so prolific. And I don't know. I just felt like I had to get more out. I had to get it out of me. You know, like there, there was stuff I had to show. And- and these are just the pieces that I decided to photograph. So, I mean, there was a lot of work along the way and a lot of stuff that ended up at, either in my backyard or uh, in, you know, in the garbage. And I, and I don't like that idea, but it's true.
1: And so how did you wind up moving towards this more kind of textural, you know, you kind of describe it in, in writing yeah. about it as more sculptural um, yeah. based off of observation, but how did you kind of, Move towards that. I mean, was there anything in particular, or was it just that gradual shift, like you were just describing?
0: Right. In two thousand nine, my dad had this uh, episode, and um, and his health was in danger, and he had some other issues, and I had to go back and forth a lot, and so it hit me that when I'm in the studio, I really wanted to be doing as much of the process that I loved as much as possible instead of just doing parts of the process that would achieve a final outcome that was amenable to my liking, you know? And so basically I, I spent some time thinking about it. I spent some time sort of um, playing with the clay and trying different things. And um, what I found is that I really enjoy manipulating the clay and adding texture to it. I really liked to get in there with the texture. I wanted more depth to the surface. I didn't see the point in in just coloring a surface. Like here you have clay. Why wouldn't you work deep down into the surface? And, And I think I was dealing with a lot of stuff like on a deeper level. And I mean, it really, it sounds like you know, hokey, but I I wanted to get in there. And so I did. I started developing sort of my own technique that would allow me to sort of play with the piece. Now, of course, it makes me play with the piece a lot longer. And it's therefore very time consuming. And therefore, it put me sort of in a different market in terms of price point and sales. And it was starting to go down that road. And You know, I'm still battling with the idea, am I a real artist, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I was still making vessels. So they still had a functional aspect to them. And my cups were still cups, but really, like, how many people were going to use this cup? And this cup was going to cost now, and not making me any real money, this cup was now going to cost... $70. And how many people do you know buy $70 cups? Well, I do because I'm obsessed with ceramic artists, but, and there are a few of us out there, but, but, but it's unlikely, right? So, so I did that for a while. And then more recently I came to the conclusion that it's okay to close the form. And I have to say, I can't say I came to a lot of this all by myself, but I started to come go down that road on my own. And so I also really got to do more of what I loved when I was in the studio. So that precious time remained precious time and it wasn't like a dreadful experience. That's another reason why a lot of my pieces became more, it's aesthetic as well as the process. They became less about, making glazes that are like a perfect color. I mean, I spent a lot of time making all my own glazes on those early pieces and never getting the yellow quite right. So I would try a new batch and I mean, it's a whole chemistry thing, but again, like it is somewhat fulfilling to know that you can do whatever you want. If you set your mind to it, like I actually understand why you would add an opacifier to this clay, you know, like Mm -hmm. I was making things from scratch. Right. So meanwhile I started developing my work with this carving and it sort of went off in a new direction And then I was really looking for some sort of critique or mentoring and so forth. And there's a gentleman who has a podcast called Tales of a Red Clay Rambler. His name is Ben Carter. He's younger than me, which, you know, like probably 10 years younger than me, Mm -hmm. which wasn't my initial plan to look for a mentor of any kind in someone younger than me. I felt like I needed someone who, you know, understood life experiences that I, you know, that that. meanwhile, though, he ended up Skyping with me a couple of times and giving me some great, you know, one-on-one response to what I was dealing with. And it was almost more philosophical than actual technical work. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's a very insightful guy. And he, I think he's probably an amazing teacher. He lives on the other side of, um, the U S and when he started his podcast, I think he was in China actually. That's so cool. Um, yeah. And so we, you know, and he really, you know, was a great help to me because he would say to me, well, what makes you think you can't, do this sculptural thing? Or why are you saying you don't want, you know, it was, it was, again, I, you know, it's that feeling of permission, which I think now is coming from myself, but it was that feeling of saying, you know what, you don't have to leave a hole in that form because, you know, you want to be able to put flowers in it because really how many people are putting flowers in that form. Mm -hmm. And I found that, they probably weren't. When the forms got so involved and they cost more money, they were, they were either decorative objects or a piece of art. And so that's when I started doing more pieces that are completely closed off. Another thing he uh, pointed out to me was I was still working very much from the wheel, keeping everything on an access. Even when I put it on its side, and worked the form that way, it was, there was still like a top and a bottom that you could stick a pole through. And even with my work now, like it's just inching away from that. Like it's not totally happening, but, but I now feel like I have the freedom to play with the work, alter it beyond this sort of balance thing, come up with different ways to present it, Um, And really reach out in a sculptural way and in in an art way with the big A, you know, and that's a big deal as um, ceramic artists in general. It's, It's sort of the stepchild of the art world. We hate to say it, but it's true. I hate to say stepchild, too, but it's sort of like the Cinderella story you know, people think, oh, you know, that's a great hobby that keeps you busy. And it's like, what? You know, (laughs) (laughs) you don't know how much I, you know, I have invested emotionally and time-wise into this. What he said was a great kind of response. And this is for any artist is basically like, when you put yourself out into the world and you say like when like when you're in a class and the teacher calls your name and you say here, you're a part of that class. The minute you say here, you know, and so by putting yourself out there, which is opening you up to criticism and everything, you are part of it. Nobody can say that you are not making art if you are making art and you say you're making art. I mean, it, you, they might not like your art but it's just as valid as anybody else. And that was very important to me. And that has really um, more recently sort of affected the direction I've gone in. And um, there were two workshops that I took that were very helpful, that were more sort of philosophical, and they were longer workshops. They were a week long. One was with Chris Gustin at Anderson Ranch, which is an amazing uh, place to learn various disciplines um, where they have one-week-long workshops to two-week-long workshops in the summer. And that's in, in Highlands in Aspen, Colorado. And another one is at Peters Valley, which is just in New Jersey. It's in Layton, New Jersey. And they get some wonderful teachers there. And again, they, it's multidisciplinary, So you might have glass and metal happening at the same time as ceramics and various other things. And then I most recently took a workshop that I literally came back from um, like a week ago that was up at Haystack School of Craft, which is in um, Deer Isle, Maine, and I had planned taking this for a long time, and it was with Chris Staley, who's head of uh, ceramics at at Penn State, Mm -hmm. and he has a lot of videos on YouTube that talk about sort of his... um, teaching process as well and he's writing a book right now actually on it um so so he's about 60 just to give you an idea like I I kind of needed that like <laughs> I needed a little like older you know reference and stuff of like where how life takes you in different turns and um another the workshop at Peters Valley which I left out the name was uh, Takashi Yasuda who's um a gentleman who does beautiful work And I would say this, this workshop, though was a two week workshop. And I think that that was huge for me on so many levels. And it was sort of, um, it really, you really got to know yourself and how other people work and, and everybody was really helping each other. And it was, it was really a wonderful experience. And you don't see that as much with artists. I think, you know, like they're all kind of out to do their own thing quite often, it's sad, but true. And I think that what's nice is with the Internet and the podcasting, you're able to help each other and reach out to each other from people that are highly technically skilled to people just starting out. In a lot of ways, I find that as we are going out, you know, we see this Internet thing. And we talked to the, about this earlier off mic and everything. But, mm-hmm. like, I really think it's important as we enter into this fast uh, growth um, technology-wise world that we're able to utilize this technology to bring people actually closer together in a positive way. And for me, I mean, that aspect of it has been huge. I mean, if not, I would be sitting in my studio trying to figure out what to do next. <laughs> right. And getting like blowing up things left and right and being like like having more mistakes than I've had in the first place, but Um, You know, I'm able to rewire my kiln because the company that makes my kiln, Scott, has a video online and basically walks you through the rewiring process. I mean, that's huge. Like me, I'm not like an engineer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I I was going to say, it seems like then too, you know, kind of by continuing, you know, it's essentially continuing a lot of this research as you're going to these workshops and studying with different people. I mean, I think one of the things that's really apparent, especially is just how much more tooling. Is involved in in some of these pieces. I would imagine that, you know, the techniques involved, and especially like the carving away, yeah. um, is something that you know you're really able to kind of keep pushing, and certainly something that's got to be a bit different than you know some of the earlier pieces, which again, you know, like we had kind of discussed, are are you know maybe a bit more formal and and softer. Um, So that, I mean, again, that seems like one of the more really interesting aspects of these is how much they shift. But could you talk a little bit more about that process that that you're currently using and and how that works?
0: So I'm throwing the pieces with very thick walls. I get a lot of people either on Instagram or Facebook or wherever they see my work. I mean, I get emails from high school kids that will see a picture and they want to know how to do it. And, you know, the truth is, I can sort of tell them how to do it. In fact, I taught a workshop earlier in the summer and um, I was really reluctant to teach it on some level because, you know, it's just if you're not a teacher all the time, you you don't you're not sure if you're going to teach right. And then at the same time, you don't necessarily want someone to just do what you're doing. But what I've come to the conclusion of is. I've really honed a lot of this. Like It it takes a long time to figure out how to do this and to do it so that it doesn't crack or so that you work with where it's going to crack, that kind of thing. But basically, I'm throwing the pieces much thicker than the people that are throwing a functional cup. I mean, in the ceramic world, it tends to be more about... Um, making a piece very thin, particularly when you're working with porcelain, you want to um, take advantage of the translucency and stuff like that. For the kind of thing I'm trying to do, I decided that I didn't want to just add pieces to it. I'm not against that going forward, necessarily. Here was my new framework. I wanted to throw shapes and vessels that I would then Take away from only I was not about adding to and that sort of created a little game for myself as well. So what you see started out as a much thicker piece that I've carved away. And I know there are some artists out there that do very geometric and pattern pieces um, that are very intense that way. And I have to say, throwing thick pieces is pretty hard to do in terms of strength. So you end up it, it gets harder and harder to throw a heavier and heavier piece, even though the walls are thick and the weight of the piece, you have to worry about drying so it doesn't collapse, et etc. et cetera. So basically on the pieces that are carved, it's fairly straightforward in that I'm carving into the piece and taking away and refining. And sometimes I'm I'm able to have it wet enough that I'm actually manipulating with my hands those edges and getting them to be more organic. On the pieces that look sort of pettily, I'm actually digging in and pushing out and taking away and making sure not to lose the structure of the form. I mean, I've had a lot of loss because basically if you want the piece wet enough to move that outer portion, the inner portion without cracking again, because now you're dealing with, if you want the outer wetter than the inner, you might want the inner to be drier. And if you start drying that, you might end up with cracks because then you've got two different things happening on that form. So I've had a lot of collapsing that can occur Because the actual integral structure that's holding the piece up just can't handle it. And it just starts to fall.
1: Right, right.
0: And sometimes I just have to give up, you know, like and say, okay, I'm just going to reclaim that clay. I know I've been working on it for 20 (laughs) hours, but this just, I'll I'll never like this piece. It's going to be a disaster. And I'm not doing that anymore. And it, it takes... I mean, sometimes you have to beat yourself over the head till you listen to your gut. you know uh,
1: what kind of materials are you using? because I again, I know obviously of like like a regular kind of clay, but I from what I understand, there's a lot of different mixes, you know there's right. porcelain, um, right. there's all different kinds of variables so what what are right. you currently you know kind of using in your in your pieces?
0: Well, I've used just about everything by now, although it's all been at the cone six temperature which in my kiln and the way I fire, I fire at different rates. So you basically have a slower cooling here and there. It's anywhere between like 2185 degrees Fahrenheit is cone six up to like 2200 uh, Fahrenheit. I've used porcelain, but mainly the reason why I'm using porcelain, sometimes for the smooth aspect of it, but it's really always been for the color, being a very white white, whereas the stonewares that I find that are effective don't tend to be as white. The cream is more of a sandy cream. I I really like a clay with a little more sand in it. I've kind of come to really enjoy the crunchiness in clay, you know. And so I, I the whites that I'm using, what I've started to do is if I want it even whiter, I will apply porcelain slip on top of the stoneware somewhere in the process, often after I've done a lot of the carving. And then I have to go back in and sort of continue to carve or refine the carving, stuff like that. And then on the darker pieces, um you have more of uh, stonewares that are either in chocolate brown or a red clay or a tan clay. And I've played with using the clays together and actually throwing them together on the wheel where you get some more interest in the depth of it. Now, my most recent work is the stoneware with some porcelain at times. And then I've basically pared it down to the only glaze I've been doing much of is just little clear... Portions. So you get the matte against the clear. The pieces almost look sort of drippy, wet in places. And then I started playing with this idea of adding glass. And that is something that is a a whole new thing to make myself crazy about. So, (laughs) and I work very intuitively. So now I'm going back and forth in my head between a plan and working intuitively.
1: I was going to ask you, I mean, is that something where you have to, where you literally draw things out or are you referencing photographs or? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I draw, but my drawing is almost more of a doodling of sorts that sort of remind me, like, why don't you try this? And why don't you try that? To me, for what I'm doing, it's so, um, confining as well as unrealistic because of the way clay reacts on the wheel and in my hand. And I'm constantly changing direction based on what the clay. And I, and I know when Grace Sheese was on, I remember she said something like the clay speaks to you and you know, It is so true. Like, sometimes you just have to be like, this clay is telling me not to do that. How many times am I going to try to do that and have it show me that it's not going to do that? You know, so you basically go back and forth with it. And you know, for me, it's being open to change as it goes along. If it starts out as a bowl, but it wants to become a closed form, well, I'm going to let it become a closed form. And I'm not going to say, well, but no, I can't do that because, you know, I started out making this. That'll have to be another piece later. You know, the glass is being put on it at the The time of glazing. So as you may know, some people do one firing where they take it from the dry form, just air dry form and glaze it and fire it once and then it's done. That is not how I work. I work. I usually bisque fire my pieces, which is to a lower temperature. Then the cone six that I was describing before. And it's at that point that I can work with the piece. It's already hard now. You know, it's not going to break from touching or cracking from, you know, not really. It's delicate, but it's hard and fired once. So then you're able to add glaze to it and it won't disintegrate. And And that's when I'm also adding glass. And this glass thing, again, is like an issue of... Just experimenting, I have not taken lessons from anyone on the glass thing, so I, i'm sure I'm making mistakes left and right. There were glass blowers at uh the workshop they were doing another workshop up at Haystack that I went to, and I am <laughs> like i'm like yeah, I'm working with glass now, but we're just not going to talk about it because <laughs> you're going to think I'm like exploiting the industry so <laughs> because I'm really just sort of playing with it and experimenting and I, but I really kind of love how where glaze you can get pooling of glazes and get some depth in there, the glass, even though it cracks, which I kind of like where I'm using it, you get this, your eye actually can go deeper and deeper into something where with the ceramics, you're kind of limited. Like it's, you're going to hit a wall, you know, Mm -hmm. or you're going to go through. And this, this just allows a new level of sort of, trying to go deeper and peeling away the layers and and playing with that and sort of making that the focal point of the work versus going back to glaze and playing with that, um, which glaze seemed to take away from the carving a lot for me. So I really liked the pieces before they were even glaze fired. So I found that I had to do less and less with glaze at this point. And that's where I've come to where I am right now. So that's going on at the same time as we started to talk before about relationships between artists and stuff like that. I definitely am noticing in my work and now I'm following through on it, a desire to sort of deal with relationships in the work. And therefore I'm, I'm playing more with multiples and um, you know, even in one piece of work, how something on that piece is relating to something else on that piece or how two pieces react to each other, or three pieces become a family, and how just positioning them differently can sort of give the feeling of an outcast or an inclusive feeling. And that's, that's a big part of where I see the work going. And, and that's where content and sculpture and the big A art word is all sort of how I see the future. I mean, at least right now.
1: Again, when we were, you know, initially scheduling this, I believe that you had a, a big show coming up. So, could you, could you talk to us a little bit about this? I believe it opens what next week?
0: Right now, I have work in the Vessels Gallery. It's vessels gallery uh, in Boston where these newer pieces that have the glass in them that's the first place I'm showing them it's it's a wonderful gallery with some other great artists I'm very proud to be in that gallery I also have a show coming up this, Saturday, it's opening in Red Bank, which is August 9th in Red Bank, New Jersey, at the um, Art Alliance of Monmouth County. And that's a show of my work and two other ceramic artists that are local. And we've called it Collaborations in Fire. Our opening is on Saturday night from five to nine. And um, and that's going to be fun because our my work is very different than both of their works. And it, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. And, uh, and that'll be up through August 26th. Then the following weekend, it's August 16th, there's a show that I've actually curated with the help of Matt Burton, who owns the M.T. Burton Gallery in Surf City, New Jersey, which is considered part of Long Beach Island. A lot of people summer there. And I curated a show, it's called. Nurtured Nature, I got together, uh, seven of us, that all kind of work with ceramics, all fairly differently, but there's a lot of texture involved, a lot of nature um, reflections in the work, and yet I really wanted... I wanted all very different artists, so um, we we'll each have about eight to ten pieces in the show. And there's about seven of us, and um, and that should be exciting as well because you know it's 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 sort of a dream team to me. It should be a great show, and that runs through September fifteenth.
1: Awesome. So. Awesome. Yeah. It sounds like you're, it sounds like yeah. you're definitely busy. <laughs> I'm busy.
0: I'm busy with all sorts of things. I, I, but I, I guess this is just how my life is. <laughs> right,
1: right. Well, I mean, I, I, and again, I think that really kind of comes across, you know, I mean, it, it sounds like you're really passionate about, you know, trying, trying out new things and, and seeing what goes out in the studio, but then also, you know, going out to workshops and yeah. kind of, kind of living your life. Yeah. Well, again, thanks so much for, for taking the time, Judy, to speak with me. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and uh, look forward to uh, sharing this. So.
0: Thanks again, David. You're great. Thanks.
1: Thanks once again to Judy for joining us. And you can check out our website, jtceramics.com, and find more information about her there. You can follow her blog. Send her a message or go see one of those shows in person. If you'd like to see some of my recent paintings, check out davidlinaway.com. Follow that hyperlink. I am excited to say that podcasts should be coming out a little bit more frequently now that summer is over. I am excited to also announce that I will be taking a little bit of a break and that I'll be doing a short week residency at Osage Artist Community in Bell, Missouri. So I'm really excited to return there. Mark has invited me out to do a live podcast to do some studio work and to interview some of the artists, talk to them, and of course see all the changes that have been made in the past five years. Very exciting stuff. In other podcast news, we're also going to be featuring Dana Sikala from 410 Project up in Mankato where she is an artist, a teacher, and runs this great space that hosts exhibitions, classes, and we're going to talk to her. We also have Julia Friedman from Exchange Works coming up. Exchange Works is a website and organization that simply allows artists to exchange work for resources. Of course, remember, you can check out other episodes of Studio Break at studiobreak.com and also in iTunes, so please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us some comments, some feedback, especially helps others that look for podcasts to listen to, and you can do your part there. Please help us get the word out on Twitter and Facebook. Please share your work. Say hello. We always like hearing from our listeners. And lastly, we just want to thank Skylar Mail, the artist and musician who provides the music for Studio Break. You can check out his website at SkylarMail.com. And with all that out of the way, that comes to the conclusion of our episode. We thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you real soon. Hey Judy? Yes. There's there's going to be a chainsaw. <laughs> so yes. can you hold on a second?